Welcome to Live on Purpose Radio with Dr. Paul Jenkins, where you will hear inspiring stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Feed your mind with a regular dose of positive energy and show up for your life every day on purpose. Living on purpose means that you have a purpose and you do it intentionally. And now, here's your host, Dr. Paul. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Live on Purpose Radio. This is Dr. Paul, the shrink who expands your life with another episode of Live on Purpose Radio. My guest today is Dr. Glenn Livingston. Dr. Glenn, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. You can call me Glenn. I'm very happy to be here. I've been looking forward to this. <laughs> well, I'm thrilled that you're here. I'm intrigued with what you're doing. Uh, folks, Dr. Glenn Livingston is a psychologist, as I am. He's got some experience with a number of things, including binge eating, overeating. Um, you've got a book called Never Binge Again. Is that correct? That's the name of the book. Where did this come from? You've got it, a history there. I certainly do have a history. And what I should tell you is that I'm not a psychologist who specialized in eating disorders. Uh-huh. As a matter of, matter of fact, I actively repelled clients with eating disorders because I had one myself. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. When I was 17, I discovered that because I'm 6'4 and reasonably muscular, if I worked out hard every day for two and a half or three hours, that I could eat anything and everything that I wanted to and stay thin. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt like it was a superpower. I didn't think it was a problem. Today, they would diagnose it as exercise bulimia. But I could have two whole pizzas or a box of muffins or six chocolate bars or a box of Pop-Tarts. I could have anything that I wanted to, mm-hmm. and I'd stay thin. And my life was really consumed with working out and eating. Mm-hmm. But when I got older and I got my degree and I was seeing patients and I was, I was married, I was commuting a few hours a day, I, I just didn't have the time to work out two hours a week, much less two hours a day. And I kept eating at the same level. I felt like I couldn't stop eating at the same level. And one of the things I know now is that these these foods have a life of their own once you pass a certain point with them. Mm. But I was getting heavier and heavier, and Mm. my triglycerides were going through the roof. The doctors were yelling at me and telling me that I was going to be dead by the time I was 35 if I didn't do something about this. Wow. I think that my top triglyceride reading was 1167 or something like that, which is at least 10 times higher than they're supposed to be. Yeah. And I, more importantly, because I'm from a family of psychologists and being a psychologist has always been very important to me, Mm -hmm. the impact on my ability to be present with patients was very serious. And I was working with some very serious patients. I thankfully never lost anybody, but I, wind up specializing in dealing with suicidal adolescents and I work with couples after an affair and, you know, the kind of people that we have to be super, super present and not just intellectually present, but emotionally present for. Right. You don't want to, the lights are on, but nobody's home when you've got someone in that kind of situation. It wasn't quite that bad, but I would be sitting there with a suicidal patient and I'd be thinking, when can I get a pizza? You know, how can I, when can I get out to Dunkin' Donuts? Wow, interesting. 
And that really, really bothered me. So I, I worked really hard to bring myself back to the moment, but it was always on my mind. And I was always consumed with, well, what am I going to eat? How much am I going to eat? How much damage is it going to do? How am I going to make up for it? How am I going to get myself to stop? Where am I going to get all this stuff anyway? I don't want my wife to see me doing it. I, I was married at the time. Wow. And yeah, so I was very, very distraught. But being a psychologist from a family of psychologists, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I went the traditional route. I figured there must be a hole in my heart somewhere. It's not what I'm eating, it's what's eating me. And I knew all the best psychologists in New York, and I knew psychiatrists and eating, eating addiction specialists, and mm -hmm. I went to see them. And I, I tried everything. Basically tried to love myself then. I went to Overeaters Anonymous for many years. I even funded a 40,000 person study on my own because I, I don't have kids and I never commuted. So I had a lot of time and I was also doing a lot of consulting for big food and big pharma, something I'm kind of embarrassed about now. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. So, so the reason I mentioned that is that I knew how to do these, these studies. I was a research consultant. I knew how to do those studies. And I set up a research study with 40,000 people across several years. Uh -huh. on the internet when clicks were cheap. And I was asking people what foods they struggle with and what life, what areas of life were they satisfied or dissatisfied with and a variety of other personality variables. Mm -hmm. And what I found, I found three interesting things, none of which helped me with the addiction. I actually made it worse, but they were mm -hmm. interesting nonetheless. And I thought I was really onto something. Oh. I found that people that struggle with chocolate, like I do, because my binge is usually started with chocolate bars. Mm -hmm. We tend to be more lonely or brokenhearted. And people who struggle with chips and pretzels and salty, crunchy things, we tend to be stressed at work. And people who struggle with soft, chewy things like um, bread and bagels or pasta, chewy, starchy things, they tended to be stressed at home. And I thought that was really interesting. Well, chocolate's huh. my thing. I'm sorry? I'm just, I'm, I'm tracking this. I'm very interested here um, in, in the process that led you to this. Because, Glenn, you're talking about a personal experience where um, it started with really some patterns as, as you were younger and, and very athletic and and involved uh, physically that you, you develop patterns of eating really more than, than would be healthy. Uh, it, it didn't pile on the weight because of your activity levels, perhaps, but then it established patterns that continued on and started to take on uh, almost an addictive level. Um, as, you're, as you're describing your relationship with food and how it would distract you. And, and that's remarkable to me because here you are as a, a practicing psychologist, right? We should know better, right? right. right. As a psychologist, we've got it all together, um, which is a, a, a total um, misrepresentation. <laughs> we actually just come are. to my family reunion. You'll, you'll, you'll just, right. You've got a whole family yeah. of dysfunctional psychologists, but yeah. We're just people who are dealing with the same principles that everyone else is. And you found yourself sort of trapped in this place. But then as you're describing your story, you used your 
your skills and your training to start to address this and wrap your head around it in a way that that maybe you could do something with it. At least that's how I'm interpreting what you've shared. Oh, yeah. With oh, yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I remember actively thinking, gosh, these companies are paying me a fortune to do this research. It must be valuable. <laughs> so oh, <laughs> so I, I, I better do it for myself. I, I yeah. remember thinking that. And you started noticing some patterns about different foods, what they meant, how uh, the psychological maybe background of what you were experiencing on a very personal level. I did, but the conclusion is totally different than what you think it's going to. And I'll tell you a story that really illustrates it. Okay. So I went to talk to my mom about this. And I said, Mom, look, I'm not in a great marriage, so it makes sense that I'm feeling a little lonely or brokenhearted. But you not only raised me, but you're also a therapist. Is there anything in my upbringing that would have set up a pattern of me being me running to chocolate when I feel lonely or brokenhearted or upset? Mm-hmm. And she got this horrible look on her face. And she said, I'm so ashamed, but yes, there is. And I said, what? And she said, well, when you were about one year old, your dad was a captain in the army. And I was very worried. I was terrified they were going to send him to Vietnam because they were talking about sending people who even had one one child. And I wasn't pregnant yet with your your sister. Mm -hmm. And I was terrified about that. And simultaneously, my dad, your grandfather, had just gotten out of prison. And my whole life, I had adored him. And I had no idea that he was doing these things. And he actually was. So I was horribly depressed. So I was simultaneously Mm -hmm. depressed and terrified kind of an agitated depression. And I would, I I just didn't have the wherewithal to take care of you when you came running to me crying, wanting to be held or fed. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I got a refrigerator and kept it on the floor and I, a little floor refrigerator, and I put a big bottle of Bosco chocolate syrup in it. And when you came running to me and I was overwhelmed, I'd say, honey, go get your Bosco. And you'd go running over to the refrigerator and you get the Bosco all by yourself and you'd suck on the bottle and you go into a sugar coma, chocolate sugar coma. Mm. And Dr. Paul, if, if this were the movies, I, mom and I would have had a good cry and a good hug and then I'd never have trouble with chocolate again. That would have solved it. Yep. <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you that it, it wasn't the movies. And although it was a good conversation to have and I felt forgiving of my mom. I learned all sorts of things about her. I felt more forgiving of myself. Like I was no longer beating myself up in the same way. It actually made the problem worse. And the reason it made the problem worse was because there was this little voice in my head that went something like this. Hey, Glenn, you know what? You're right. Your mama didn't love you enough and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in your heart. And until you can find the love of your life, you're going to have to go out and binge on chocolate. Let's go get some right now. Yippee. Oh, boy. And so that was my first clue that maybe trying to love myself out of this was not going to work. Mm. Like I, I had to shift the paradigm. And that's, that's sort of the traditional thought around this. I, I've noticed as I've looked over your website and just gotten to know a little bit about your story, Glenn, that um, you're not necessarily a big fan of some of the traditional thinking around not only what causes this, but what is going to help us to resolve it. Yeah. Yeah. And as as we've set that up here with your story, 
when we come back from this break, I know you're going to share with us what you've learned about that and hopefully give us some hope as to where we can go. I will definitely do that. To maybe come up with some solutions. So folks, this is Dr. Glenn Livingston today at Live On Purpose Radio. We will be right back. Thank you for listening to Live On Purpose Radio. We're so glad to have you here. Please come by the website, drpauljenkins.com, spelled with a D-R, drpauljenkins.com. On the website, you'll have an opportunity to receive a free download. And while you're there, make sure you click on the social media icons. Come over to Facebook, where we will be posting these episodes as well as our YouTube videos and other content and announcements for you to share. Please like us, comment, subscribe, join the conversation. We're happy to have you with us here at Live On Purpose Radio. Let's all support each other to live on purpose. DrPaulJenkins.com And we're back. Dr. Glenn Livingston at Live On Purpose Radio. Glenn, you shared a story with us before we went to break about your... Uh, personal experience with with overeating, with binging. Um, you went through this professional experience with it as well, where you got to do some research and learn more. I, I felt as you were sharing that with us that you were leading us up to something that finally created a breakthrough. Can you yeah. share that with us? It was a combination of looking at the neurology of the brain and studying some alternative addiction treatment literature by a guy named Jack Trimpey. And the combination led me to understand that the, the addiction is really seated in the lizard brain. It's the earliest evolutionary structure, or if you're religious, it doesn't really matter. It's the most primitive structure that, that's inside of us. Yeah. It doesn't matter whether God put it there or it evolved. And when the lizard brain looks at something in the environment, it says, do I eat it, do I mate with it, or do I kill it? Eat, mm. mate, or kill. And for that reason, it's difficult to love yourself out of an addiction because everything that's important to us as human beings resides much more so in the neocortex or somewhat in the mammalian brain or the, the emotional brain. And that's that's where love and concern for family or tribe or creativity or music or art or long-term goals and aspirations like your weight loss plans or um, you know, contribution to society or spirituality and religion. Mm-hmm. Those are all what you make us uniquely human, but they're not in the lizard brain. They don't reside at that primitive level. Right. And what happens, if you look at the animal studies on what happens when you short-circuit the pleasure center by putting an electrode that will stimulate that part of the lizard brain that that creates pleasure is that those animals ignore their survival needs and their lizard brain takes over and they will, for example, press a lever to self-stimulate thousands of times a day. They'll They'll ignore food even if they're starving. They'll ignore their pups. Nursing mothers will ignore their pups to press levers thousands of times a day. And then that's when the aha moment came on look, I was doing consulting for big food and industry, and I saw the billions of dollars of research that was going into engineering these 
hyperpalatable food-like substances, like concentrations of salt and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins and starch and things that just don't exist in nature that mm. really are stimulating our evolutionary buttons at a level evolution didn't prepare us for. Right. Like, like I know nobody's putting an electrode in your brain, but when you walk out of a McDonald's on one street corner and across the street is another McDonald's, mm -hmm. you have to wonder what's going on. And, and, and it's, it's kind of close. So there are all these bags and boxes and containers, and there's billions of dollars going into advertising with like five to 7,000 messages a year coming at us about food. And are, are there a dozen of them that are about fruits and vegetables? It, it's, just, it's just a perfect storm to give these foods a, a life of their own. And so what this guy, Jack Trimpey, was saying, essentially, I'm really paraphrasing him, but he's at Rational Recovery. He mm -hmm. was saying that it's more like capturing and caging a wild animal than nurturing your wounded child back to health. Okay. You've got this organ inside of you. It's, it's not that much different than your ovaries or your testes or your bladder. And it generates a very powerful biological urge. But that urge has to be controlled and directed. And it's up to the part of you that's human to control and direct that. So having the paradigm of loving yourself out of the addictive urge is entirely wrong because you're just going to open up to your lizard brain at that time. What, what you want to do instead is dominate it in the way that an alpha wolf dominates a challenger for leadership. When, when right, like one of the, one of the other wolves in the pack tries to take over the alpha spot, that alpha wolf says, you know, get back in line or I'll kill you. That's basically the attitude. Mm -hmm. so here's what I did. And this is the embarrassing part for me, Paul, but okay. I, I said, I have a pig inside of me. I'm going to call my lizard brain my inner pig. Okay. And I'm going to draw lines in the sand to make this like giving up a drug. So I'm going to say, I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again. And therefore, any little voice in my head that suggested that I was going to have chocolate on a weekday because, well, I did a good exercise or I could start tomorrow or whatever, mm -hmm. that was going to be pig squeal. And the chocolate itself on a weekday was going to be pig slop. And if I felt a craving, I'd say, I don't want that. My pig does. I don't eat pig slop. I don't know let farm animals tell me what to do. <laughs> and as, as ridiculous as that sounds, like you, know, like you and I are fairly sophisticated psychologists and <laughs> had illustrious careers. After 30 years of suffering, that's what put it together for me. Not, not instantaneously, but it started to give me those extra microseconds that I needed at the moment of impulse. Yes. To, right? Just to wake up and remember who I was. Yeah. And from there, I just, I kept on working on the system and I had to make a lot of modifications, come up with different types of rules that were more conditional, that some things were not never as they were always, things that you added to your diet as opposed to took away. I did a lot of experimentation. I had to learn how to forgive myself when I made mistakes. But slowly but surely, I figured out a way that allowed me to keep getting up and aiming at the bullseye until I got better and better and better at it. And before I knew it, I was just not binging. I, I, I was just free of it. And wow. Yeah. It, there are so many powerful things about the story that you just shared. And you prefaced it a little bit, Glenn, with, you know, a sense of, oh, well, this is the part that's a little embarrassing or because it seems so, I don't know, unsophisticated perhaps, yeah. uh, but really 
we're dealing with a part of our brain that doesn't care about sophistication. Right. And I've long known that until you see it as a choice, it's not. Something has to break that pattern. And the image that you're sharing about, you know, your inner pig gives you a way to, as you, as you so skillfully pointed out, it, it bought you a little bit of time so that you don't just react to the craving. You actually pause, put an image on it that allows you to actually do uh, what we in the industry call metacognition. You think about your thinking for a moment. Yes. And it, it raises your awareness of it to the point where you're back in choice now. Yes. At least that's how I, this psychologist's brain is making sense of what you've just shared. Well, no, that's perfect. That's perfect. And the, the layer on top of that that I've come to understand is that what you're really doing is developing character by articulating very specifically how you will behave in an impulsive situation every time. And ca- character trumps willpower. If I ask people, do you think you could never eat chocolate again? They'll go, oh, no way. Mm-hmm. But if I say, do you think you could become the kind of person who doesn't eat chocolate? They go, hmm. The oh. they, and they do that because they're used to having made decisions, even unconsciously, about the kind of person they want to be in particular situations. If you if you yes. walk into a diner, Paul, and you see there's a $20 bill on the table because the waitress hasn't seen her tip, and she says, I'll be right back. I'm just going to get you a menu. And there's no video camera. There's nobody up front. There's no window. Nobody would see you take it. Would you take that $20 bill? Absolutely not. Because? I'm not the kind of person who would do that. Right. You're not a thief. Yeah. As, as a matter of character trumps willpower. Willpower is a fatigable muscle that is worn down by every decision you have to make. But we as human beings have developed this thing called character that obviates us of the need to make decisions in difficult situations. We don't kick policemen in the tushy. We don't grab a tractor train strangers and kiss him in the street. We don't pee in our mother's in-law, mother-in-law's living room because we're not the kind of people that do that. We've been socialized, albeit unconsciously, to develop character in those areas. Mm-hmm. So really what I've discovered is the necessity to identify your trigger foods and trigger behaviors, figure out what role you want that food and behavior to play in your life, what kind of person do you want to be around that food, and then implement that. And then there are a bunch of techniques I don't know if we have time to talk about to overcome mistakes and, and um, forgive yourself in the dig- with dignity without dismissing the intent as insignificant. So mm-hmm. right. that's how it all worked. Yeah. And I got, I got better. Wow. And, and this powerful personal experience that you had has put you in a position to assist others to do the same thing. Have you seen similar impact with oh my God, yeah. some of your clients and people that you've worked with? You know, I thought I was never going to, I was never going to publish this. I, I kept a journal for eight years of me versus my inner pig. You don't have to call it a pig. You can call it your food monster or whatever you want to call it. It, it was an unfortunate metaphor because pigs are actually very sweet animals, but yeah. that's what, that's what I called it. I kept the journal for eight years. I published it at the behest of the CEO of a company that I, it's a publishing company that I owned 8% of. And I said, I don't think I can do this. I'm not going to get on the radio and 
be the sophisticated psychologist that talks about a pig inside me. And he says, dude, I, I read the journal. It worked for me. This is going to work for a lot of people. You have to do it. <laughs> and, um, there, we have 500,000 copies now. And you know, wow. we had 1,600 reviews. And, it's, this mm-hmm. is, and thank God, because I was in the middle of getting divorced and I had to close everything else down. And thank God this pays the bills now. But um, yeah, yeah, so it's put me in a really great position. I got letters from people all the time that say that they read the book and it freed them when nothing else has freed them. And, um, you know, we, we, we've built a whole built a whole coaching network around it and we have all types of free materials and we're trying to help a million people a year to stop binge eating. Binge eating. Wow. And uh, the fact that it's paying the bills for you, Glenn, is a testament to the fact that it's actually helping people to do just that. Oh, oh and make no mistake. I, I mean, we're involved in a startup and we're constantly funding the money back. And I, I make about three times less than I used to, but that's okay. I don't, <laughs> I'm not really in it for the, for the bucks. So um, well, yeah, no, it's, it's working for people. It really is. Thank you so much for sharing your experience here. And I, I know we haven't gotten into all of the details, but you cover that in your book and you're actually willing to share that book with our listeners. Would you tell them how they can get a hold of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll, we'll give you a free copy in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format, an electronic format. Okay. Go to neverbingeagain.com and click on the big red free bonus section. Then we'll get you that copy if you sign up for that list. What we'll also get you, which might be more important, are recordings of full-length coaching sessions that I did with real people. Because this sounds really weird and harsh in, in theory when Paul and I talk about it. But in practice, it's actually a very compassionate approach that restores people's hope and enthusiasm and belief in their personal power. And it, it combats the sense of powerlessness and um, abdication of like hope and responsibility that people feel in, in the in the culture with regards to food addiction. So it's all at neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. Oh, and there's one more thing. We will give you the, um, I developed a set of food plan starter templates. So the book is diet agnostic. It doesn't matter what diet you follow. There's a template for low carb. There's a template for high carb. There's a template for point counters, calorie counters, macrobiotic, vegan, wh- whatever you're following, there's a template for you. A whole bunch of other good stuff. It's all at neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. That sounds easy enough. So neverbingeagain.com. And it'll be obvious from there, right? It'll be very obvious from there, yes. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us here today at Live On Purpose Radio, Glenn. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed being here. Thanks, Paul. Uh, Folks, you've heard it from the good doctor. Um, you probably have felt something. If you haven't, you've probably thought of something or someone who might benefit from this. And as, as we gain this value, I think it's time now to go live on purpose. Mm-hmm.